Hey guys, welcome to Cracked. I'm your host, Tristina Tucker, and I'm here with co-host Jen Troyer. Hey guys. So before we get started today, I want to offer my sincerest apologies. We've been so swamped the last couple of weeks, and we've been trying to get an announcement out, and we just haven't. We've had a lot of personal things going on, and we just had some technology issues, and we just weren't able to get an episode out. We were really struggling because we want to just bring you guys a better quality of episode overall, and we were also trying to work on rebranding and redesigning our website and logo. So anyway, we are so sorry, and we are going to continue to bring you episodes regularly. So today is May 14th, and we are going to be releasing episodes on the second Friday of every month for the next little bit until we can get caught up, and then we will get back to our regular bi-weekly schedule. Today on the show, we are going to be covering our first serial killer. A couple of weeks ago, we put a poll on our Instagram account asking you guys to choose between the Zodiac Killer and Jeffrey Dahmer. I've always had a hard time picking cases, so I thought why not let our listeners tell us what they want to hear. It was down to the wire, but the Zodiac won by only a few votes. So that's the story we're going to be telling you guys today. The Zodiac Killer terrorized Northern California in the late 1960s. He was linked to multiple gruesome murders and taunted the police force with letters and ciphers. And the worst part is, he was never found. This is the story of the Zodiac Killer. Before I get into this case, I want to make one quick note. This case is a little intense, and we don't recommend listening if you're under the age of 13. Jen, you've heard of the Zodiac Killer, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't really know that much about it. You've told me some stuff, and I've heard of it because it's pretty infamous, right? Oh, yeah. Huge. So, I mean, yeah, I know it, but not any specific case details or anything. Perfect. I love talking about new cases. So, our story begins on Friday, December 20th, 1968. Betty Lou Jensen was 16 years old and was going on her very first date. Her date, David Faraday, was 17 years old at the time. You know, I'm sure they were both so excited and happy, which makes this story so much harder to tell. So, these kids were about our age. Yeah, I mean, you turned 17, what, a month ago? Yeah, and your birthday was like two weeks ago or so. Right, and I turned 17, so yeah, these kids were exactly our age. So anyway, they were on this date, and keep in mind, Faraday had promised to have Jensen home by 11. So these kids had parked their car in this gravel parking lot. It was off a remote part of Lake Herman Road on the outskirts of Vallejo, California. According to police report, the two teens were sitting in Faraday's station wagon when the two teens were approached. Shortly after 11, shots were fired into Faraday's station wagon in an attempt to remove the kids from the vehicle. Oh my gosh, those poor kids were probably terrified. Oh, I'm sure. Jensen exited out the front passenger door first, and she was followed by Faraday. Faraday was shot as he attempted to exit the car, and Jensen was shot as she tried to flee on foot. Oh my goodness, this is heartbreaking. Maybe because they were my age, so I can easily put myself in their situation, but they must have been so scared. Yeah, I think it is easier because we can better relate, but this is the case for all serial killer victims. Trying to imagine what they go through in their final moments is so painfully sad. Yeah, that's true. The police discovered the weapon was a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol. 
They also found shell casings at the scene, telling them that the ammunition used was Winchester Western Super X copper coated. There was no sign of a robbery, and there was no evidence leading police to believe that either victim had been sexually assaulted. There were no witnesses at the scene of the crime either. Lesson number one, never sit in a parked car in a remote area at night. Very solid point, Jen. Anyway, this shocked the community and the parents of the victims. Of course, I mean, no one could have seen this coming. Of course not, and the most frustrating part about it is that the police had no lead or suspects in the killing. I mean, I can imagine. The shock that this must have brought to the community would have made everyone eager to solve the case. Right, exactly. Unfortunately, it only got worse from there. Our next attack was in the early morning hours of July 5th, 1969. 22-year-old Darlene Farron was a wife, mother, and a waitress at Terry's Restaurant. Now, she was hanging out with 19-year-old Mike Majot. Was she having an affair? You know, I'm not 100% certain on that. Some sources say that they were just friends, while others say it was a date. However, later on, Farron's husband does become a suspect, so it's likely that it was more than friendly. So anyway, these two were sitting in a parked car. That sounds familiar. Unfortunately, yes, it does, and it only gets worse. They were sitting in a parking lot in a secluded Blue Rock Springs Park on the eastern outskirts of Vallejo. Now, the one good thing about this attack is that Majot survived. So this story does come directly from him. But according to him, the two were sitting in a parked car talking around 12.10 a.m. when a light brown Chevrolet pulled up a few feet away. A man gets out of the car and approaches the couple with a flashlight. Please tell me they drove away. They did not. They actually thought that it was a law enforcement officer, so they got their identification ready. Then the man began firing on them. He fired five shots at the couple and began walking back to his car. However, Majot screamed out in pain. Understandably. Yeah, so then the man came back and fired two more shots at Farron and two more shots at Majot. So Farron was shot five times in all and Majot was shot four. Oh my gosh, this guy's relentless. I know. But when he came back, it gave Majot an opportunity to get a better look at the killer. He was between 5'8 and 5'9. He was in his late 20s to early 30s. He had a stocky build and a rounder face with brown hair. Well, I guess it's a good thing he got that description. Definitely. I mean, the circumstances were terrible, but it is helpful later on down the line. So police were later able to determine the weapon was a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. And again, there was no indication of robbery or sexual assault. So shortly after the murder, around 1240, Vallejo Police Department received a call from a low, monotone voice claiming responsibility for the murder. Jen, why don't you go ahead and read the transcript of the call? Sure. Quote, I want to report a murder. If you go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm lugger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. End quote. Oh my gosh, that's sick. Right? I mean, it's so disturbing that he would taunt the police like that. I also find it interesting that he refers to the victims as kids. That almost makes me think that he would have been a little bit older, maybe early 30s. That's a really good point. Did the police realize that? Not that I'm aware of. I, I tried to find something about that, but there was nothing really that I could find. 
but Majot did identify him as late 20s, early 30s, so they were on that path anyway. Farron died en route to the hospital, but Majot did survive, like I said. That's a huge blessing. Think of all the information they wouldn't have had if he had died. Exactly. So, did they have any idea who was responsible at this point? Well, they had a few people in mind. Their first suspect, like I previously mentioned, was Farron's husband, Dean. He was, however, ruled out because he was working at the time of the murder. Farron's first husband, James Philip Crabtree, was also a suspect, but he was ruled out as well. So for a few weeks, the investigation was dry. However, on July 31st, so about three weeks later, a new piece of evidence arrived that shocked everyone. On July 31st, a letter arrived to the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Examiner, and the San Francisco Chronicle. From who? From the killer himself. In this letter, details about the murders were provided. It also contained one of a three-part cipher that supposedly revealed the identity of the killer. Oh my gosh, is this where he like named himself the Zodiac Killer? He did eventually, but it was not in this letter. Was this the last attack? No, it was not. Our third attack occurred on Saturday, September 27, 1969. 22-year-old Cecilia Shepard and 22-year-old Brian Hartnell were relaxing on the shoreline of Lake Berryessa near Napa, California around 6.15 p.m. Shepard noticed a man approaching in a strange costume with a gun. Now, the man was around six feet tall with a heavy build, and he told the couple that he had escaped from prison and he needed money and a car to flee to Mexico. Hartnell offered his keys and his wallet, which were not accepted. The man began tying up the couple with a plastic clothesline and then started stabbing them. What the? That's so aggressive compared to the last attack. Yeah, it truly is. Hartnell was attacked first and stabbed six times in the back, and then Shepard was stabbed ten times. Oh my gosh, that's horrific. Yeah, five times in the front, five times in the back, with a wooden-handled 12-inch blade. Several minutes after the man walked away, a fisherman saw the couple and alerted park rangers because they were screaming. Shepard and Hartnell were able to untie themselves before emergency services arrived at the scene. It took almost an hour for an ambulance to get there, and by that time, both victims were already in critical condition. An hour? Why did it take that long? I wish I knew, but I couldn't find anything explaining why. A little over an hour after the attack, Napa Police Department received a call from a man claiming responsibility for the attack. Oh my gosh, what did he say? Well, he reported a double murder and described Brian Hartnell's car. He then went on to direct police to the crime scene and he ended with, quote, I'm the one who did it, end quote. What the heck? This guy loves taunting. Were police able to, like, trace the call or anything like that? They were. They traced the call to a payphone outside of a car wash in downtown Napa. Although that really isn't that much help, they were able to recover fingerprints. Now, at this point, Napa County Sheriff's Department was at the crime scene. There was a message written on the door of Brian Hartnell's car, and it had the dates and times of the previous and current murders, and it also had the Zodiac symbol. What's that? It was basically the Zodiac Killer's signature. It was a circle with a cross through the middle. There's also a picture on our website for those of you who are following along. 
Police also find tracks around Hartnell's car. Like tire tracks or do you mean like footprints? Well, actually both. They find tire tracks and it leads investigators to believe that the Zodiac pulled his car behind Hartnell. They also found size 10 and a half wing walker shoe prints at the scene too. Wait, sorry, I have a question. How did police know how the night unfolded? Did the victims survive or were they just piecing it together or were there witnesses or what happened? Actually, yes, Brian Hartnell did survive this vicious attack, although Celia Shepard dies roughly 48 hours later. The most important thing about this attack, though, that everyone needs to pay attention to is the fact that after this, the profile for the Zodiac Killer gets a lot more complicated. In his last attacks, he was distant and he shot his victims. Now, he's tying them up and brutally stabbing them. You can see his sadistic nature come to light way more in this attack. He now needed to practice much more sick and twisted behaviors in order to satisfy his violent fantasies. Did the police realize this? I believe they did, yes. So, are we ready for our fourth attack, Jen? No, but let's hear it. Okay, so our fourth attack occurred on October 11th, 1969. 29-year-old Paul Stein was a taxi driver at the time. Now, our fourth attack occurs in the Presidio Heights neighborhood of San Francisco, California. Stein was driving and he gets hailed at the corner of Mason and Geary. So he's driving and his destination is the corner of Washington and Maple. For unknown reasons, however, he stopped at the corner of Washington and Cherry, just one block away from where he was headed. And this is where Paul Stein was murdered. He was shot in the back of the head, his keys and wallet were taken, and a patch of his shirt was ripped off and taken as well. Wait, why did the killer take his keys and wallet? He's never done that before. The only thing I can think of was that since it was a more public display, he was trying to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. That's initially what police thought it was, but the, uh, that also doesn't make sense because he thrived off of taunting the police about his kills. Yeah, that's weird. Luckily though, there were three witnesses that saw the entire scene unfold about 60 feet away. They watched the killer wipe down the car, and when they realized what was going on, they called 911. They described a white male between the ages of 25 and 30. He was between 5'8 and 5'9, a stocky build, reddish-brown hair worn in a crew cut, heavy-rimmed glasses, and dark clothes. He was last seen casually walking north up Cherry Street. Were police able to get anything off of that description or anything? Well, yes and no. See, the problem was that the police dispatcher described the suspect correctly, except they said that the killer was a black man. No. Yeah, I know. So patrol officers Donald Fuke and Eric Zelms observed a white man who matched the description walking up Jackson Street. However, since he was white, he was not stopped and questioned. When the correct description came in, the officers realized that they might have seen the killer. A search was conducted, but they had no luck. So, was that kind of the end of it? Not quite. 
On October 13th, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter from the Zodiac Killer where he not only said, quote, I am the murder of the taxi driver, end quote, but he also attached the bloody the piece of Stein's shirt that was torn off. At the end of this letter, he even said that he would shoot the tire off of a school bus and, quote, pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out, end quote. No, absolutely not. That's so disgusting. It no, yeah, it really is unbelievable. Police made a sketch based off of all the different sightings of the killer, but he was never caught. So, was Paul Stein the last victim of the Zodiac? Well, officially, yes. However, there were many other attacks that were suspected of being Zodiac victims. Now, I could go on for hours about possible victims, but I'm going to talk about just one attack where the victim escaped. Ooh, okay. So this is a story about Kathleen Johns. Kathleen was a mother of an infant at the time. Now, she was leaving San Bernardino in a station wagon and heading to Northern California to visit her mom. Keep in mind, she was also seven months pregnant at the time as well. So she was traveling along Highway 132 near Modesto, California. And for all of our regular listeners out there, Modesto was where... Wait, Lacey Peterson. Yes, Jen, correct. Later on, Modesto will be home to Scott and Lacey Peterson. So anyway, she was just cruising and another car pulls up beside her on the highway and signaled for Kathleen to pull over. So she did and the other driver told Kathleen that the back wheel of her car was loose. Now he said that he would fix it, but instead he actually loosened it. So when her wheel fell off, he offered to give her a ride to the gas station. No, 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 please tell me she said no. She said yes. No! She got in the car, but obviously this guy had other plans. He made veiled threats to harm her baby, and Kathleen was not having this, so she grabbed her baby and jumped out of the car. Yes, go Kathleen. Right? Well, a passenger driving picked her up and took her to the police station. She then identified the man from the Zodiac poster as her kidnapper. And the bizarre thing is that later on in a Zodiac letter, he wrote about a, quote, interesting ride with a woman and her baby. She is so unbelievably lucky. Oh, yeah, and she probably didn't realize how lucky at the time, but I bet she was thanking herself later. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So I want to take a few minutes and talk about some of the theories for who the Zodiac Killer was. Now, there were obviously crazy theories out there. Some people thought it was Unabomber Ted Krasinski, cult leader Charles Manson, and some people even thought that it was serial killer Ted Bundy. And actually, they even tested the fingerprints found at the phone booth with Bundy's, and obviously it was negative. Yeah, that sounds a little outlandish. No, definitely. I mean, it's not even remotely the same type of killer. Ted Bundy was fulfilling sexual fantasies, totally different from the Zodiac. Yeah, did they have any realistic suspects? <laughs> I mean, again, there were theories. A man later named Arthur Lee Allen is kind of the most common one. 
Although he was never conclusively connected to the killings, there was another man named Earl Van Best Jr who was also thought to be the killer. His son published an article in HarperCollins in 2014 claiming his dad was the killer and he did resemble the police sketch, but he was never linked either. So like I said, there was these mediocre theories, but really nothing concrete. This case was crazy. I can't believe some of the horrible things people do to others. It's heartbreaking. No, it truly shows the worst in humanity. It is so heartbreaking and our hearts go out to all the families of the victims. We want to thank everyone for tuning in to today's episode. Today we covered a serial killer which was obviously a new thing for us. And this is kind of Tristina's area of expertise. So if you guys like this case, let us know and we will gladly cover more in the future. Please be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at crack.crime.podcast and Twitter at crackedcrime. You can also visit us on our website, which is linked in our bio. As always, feel free to send us an email with any case suggestions or questions regarding the episode at crackedcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and be sure to tune in next time for Cracked.